There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. And Greg, last week we started this mini-series on how to choose an investment professional to work with. We did. But we're going to continue that discussion next week as we have a special guest joining us today. And this guest works in risk, advising on risk anyways. And given the volatility we've seen intraday in the stock markets these past few weeks, kind of like on, was it last Monday, the market was down 900 points at the open and then closed up positive. Yep. I would call that a pretty volatile day. Now, I met this guest at a conference in Scottsdale, pre-pandemic, of course, when we used to travel and do things like that. And oh, I yeah. enjoyed her presentation so much that I thought she'd be a great guest for our show. So today, our guest is Allison Schrager. Allison is an economist, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal, a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, co-founder of Lifecycle Finance Partners, a risk advisory firm. She's done work with the International Monetary Fund. She's worked with Dimensional Fund Advisors, a company that we hold dear to our hearts. And she's the author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. And we're going to talk about that. Welcome to the show, Allison. I know this is the pinnacle of your career to be on the Free Lunch Podcast. No, every podcast is special. Yeah, there so you I'm go. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> That's especially great. this one, though. Especially <laughs> this one. Greg, you want to kick us off? Sure. Well, listen, you seem like a bit of a multitasker, Allison. So just how did you get here where you are today? Like, tell us your story. I never really had much of a plan. I'm not a planner and I'm not terribly strategic. After grad school, I just wanted to not be in academia. That's all I knew. So I started writing for The Economist. That sounds more impressive than it was in 2006. I think they would have let a monkey write for their website because no one cared about web journalism back then. And they kind of gave me a shot and in exchange said they'd teach me how to write because I was definitely not a very good writer at that time. So I started there. I was there for only a couple months before I met Bob Merton. I guess your work with DFA, you would have encountered him some. Of course. And... He found my dissertation and he was like, I'm really thinking a lot of the same thoughts. Why don't you come work with me? I will help you. I'll teach you finance and we will build financial products from our research. And obviously that sounded amazing. And it was also intellectually, as you can imagine, a really special time for me because I was a macroeconomist at that point and learning finance from someone like Merton was really life-changing and a lot of lights went on for me. And I consider it a great conversion for me into becoming a financial economist instead of a macroeconomist. Although I think technically some people still call me macro. <laughs> and so we worked together for like seven years and I was always writing on the side. I kept up with The Economist and that's how I ended up at DFA when they acquired the product we were working on. And then I got to work there and got to work with all the really brilliant people there, learned even more finance. And then I left DFA and didn't really quite know what to do next, but I had learned a lot about finance and I'd kept up my writing. So I felt like the next natural progression was to combine the two, the financial knowledge and my writing ability, writing skills and writing network that I developed 
at that point over several years. So I wrote the book and the original idea was it would be something like Freakonomics for Finance, how you can see how the basic principles of finance are at play in industries you never really thought of, like sex work or celebrity photography or whatever. And so honestly, it just sounded like fun to me that I could go around the country and meet cool people and hear what makes them tick. Like I'm starting a new book now and I'm looking for new stories and I explain to people that a risk story is always going to be a good story because there's just natural drama in it. You make a decision. The decision's got to be bold. You don't know what's going to happen. So stories about risk are always inherently going to be interesting. And stories without risk are not interesting. It's fascinating that I'm talking to people about ideas for new stories, and they always want to tell you a story from their industry. Sometimes they're more interesting than others, but it's amazing how people don't even realize when risk is not present, and that's why it makes it a bad story. <laughs> I was like, well, they did this thing. And I was like, well, what did they have to lose? They're like, well, nothing. <laughs> well, politely, I'm like saying, well, one, that's not really a risk story. And two, that's also a boring story. It was a really fun book to write. I met amazing people and heard great stories. And I like to think it came out well because every story as well has that dramatic tension because risk is always has drama to it. And then I think at that point, after you write a book, you're on that, I guess, what they call public intellectual track because that's what you do with the book. After that, I joined the Think Tank and started writing from Bloomberg and starting the next book. Let's talk a little bit about your book. So it's entitled, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. That's a catchy title. I'd argue that you sort of took Freakonomics to a new level there, (laughs) because certainly by getting into things like the sex trade, that's not something that would logically pop to mind. So how did you come up with these places to look for risk? And how did the sex trade and some of the other areas that you talk about, big wave surfing and things like that, how did those come to mind? Well, the sex trade sort of fell into my lap, I guess. I was starting the book and I had this idea that I'd find cool, like economics for finance. But Steve Levitt had a bunch of research papers and I did not. And I was like, I am not in the research game anymore. I haven't since grad school, but I do know how to report. So I guess I'll find cool stories and meet people. And anyway, I'd worked as a journalist. I didn't really actually know how to report because economics journalists don't report. They just sort of sit at their desk and call people. Actually going out, meeting people, developing sources wasn't something I really knew how to do or didn't even know how to find cool stories. So I was really struggling to figure out. It sounded like such a good idea in theory, more than practice. I was talking to a friend of mine who it turns out, I was like, I'm looking for a cool story. Like maybe someone who's doing something illegal. And he was like, well, my girlfriend actually runs an online brothel and she matches submissives with clients and her main value add, because it's easy enough to find clients yourself, is that she screens the clients because you're going to be tied up by some rando you met on the internet. Obviously, that's very dangerous. So she does is she reduces the risk. And for that, she gets one third of the transaction. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a good risk story because risk is always like, how much are you paying to reduce it? So I interviewed her and I wrote this story of we can put a price on risk reduction in the submissive market. And the story did pretty well, as you can imagine. And then the Bunny Ranch called me, the famous brothel in Nevada. And they were like, well, if you're going to be writing about brothels, you should be writing about our brothel. Because I guess they're like the Goldman Sachs of brothels. Like they're right. the best one, uh, the most prestigious one to be working at. And I was like, well, I don't really write about brothels. But why don't you tell me more about this? Because I always take that call. And that's pretty boring. And then he explained to me that they don't have set prices, that every transaction is individually negotiated. And I was like, well, that's interesting. You're telling me you have women who are like 19 years old 
negotiating for tens of thousands of dollars with men in their 60s. And he's like, yeah, no one's ever asked about that before. It's interesting. Women who come here are not really knowing their value. So we have a negotiation training program. So they ask for more, like all these feminist buzzwords. And I was like, well, this is interesting. I had a wonderful editor at the time who was like, you need to go. We will put you on a plane and we'll go and we'll take a videographer with you. So off we went to the brothel. And while I was there, I was talking to all the women about negotiating. So obviously it came up, what do you charge? And like any interesting market, there's always a good risk element there. So I discovered how people pay premium in the sex market to reduce risk. And then that just became a story. But the other stories like surfing or poker or the other stuff, honestly, any industry has a risk element. So you always know that's going to be there. And that's probably going to be the most interesting thing about the industry. So I just picked out things that I thought were cool. And I just wanted to learn about myself. I love celebrity gossip. So that's why I ended up like hanging out with the paparazzi for two months because they're just there on the street. They were the hardest group to infiltrate. And so after I got in with them, I just learned all about how that worked. And said, there's always a risk story and everything. Interesting. And we'd certainly recommend people take a look at that book because it's just entertaining. Well, are we recommending Allison's book, Greg? Of course we are. Yeah, of course we are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Of course, as we move on here, everything's going to seem mundane by comparison to the stories in your book. But we're involved, obviously, a lot with our clients in planning, and we do a lot of retirement planning. And you've obviously spent some time in your academic and your post-academic career thinking about retirement risks. So what are some of the biggest risks that people face as they plan for retirement? Actually, I find that more interesting than sex work personally. (laughs) I think it's such an interesting problem and one that's a lot harder to solve. I think we haven't really grappled with people actually retiring. I mean, we've gotten pretty good at the saving part. And I think there's good conventional strategies to how you build up wealth. I think spending down wealth is a much harder problem. And also there's very few good solutions. It's like, I was emailing my editor recently about annuitization. I love annuities, like all economists, but it's sort of like, well, let's put annuities in target date funds. It's like, well, how do you annuitize? When, at what point, when your asset balance is what? And our annuity prices are determined by long-term bonds and most target date funds put you in short-term bonds. I mean, it's not that easy. And It's amazing to me that we're sort of jumping into this without thinking through all of these things. And there's no margin for error with your spending plan. Like if you run out of money and you're 90, what do you do? There's a much bigger margin for error on the saving phase and the spending down phase. So I think that's the biggest risk. We don't have a lot of good solutions, except I think good financial advice, which is what you do. But I don't think we figured out how to deliver that for lower asset people because they also have fewer assets and are more likely to run through them all, they probably need better advice more. So I think that for me is the thing that concerns me most. That's actually a really interesting point. We have a person on our team, Paige Hilton, who's started a financial literacy program and she's gearing towards those people that you described because there aren't a lot of channels for them to get good advice because our industry, let's face it, is geared towards people that have money. And it's easy to do retirement projections if you have a very big pot of money. It's harder when it's smaller. Totally. I mean, I think the more money you have, you don't even need to spend down principal. You can just live off of interest premiums and dividends and all these sorts of things. But my mother is on the verge of retiring or semi-retiring. She'll probably always work a little bit because she's a knowledge job. And I keep trying to explain to her, she thinks she can't retire until she has enough money that she can live off of interest payments. I'm like, you saved all this money for a reason. You should feel comfortable spending down principal. Again, there's much less margin for error if you're doing that. 
So I think in the financial service industry, not just advice, but in general, has sort of been built around that more money means you need better advice. But really, the less money you have, the more you need good advice. Interesting. Earlier, I was talking to Colin about this. One of the things we try to do is help people understand risk. And of course, it's only downside risk that people care about. Nobody gets upset if the market is a couple of standard deviations higher than usual. So it's really the downside risk that people care about. But it seems like there's a personal experience factor. So I think of my mother who grew up as a young child during the Depression and lived the rest of her life as if she was still in the Depression. So even when she had money, she would never spend it because of the scarcity risk, or at least that was her mindset. And then you look at people like maybe my kids or Colin's kids who have grown up thinking that life is all about going to Hawaii or Disneyland twice a year or something. And the concept of not having enough money to actually do those things is totally foreign to them. To what extent do people have to experience a bad event, a risky event, in order for it to really make sense? How do you teach people about risk when they haven't experienced what could happen themselves? I don't know. I mean, I think even people who have experienced risk tend to forget it. When you even hear people who are professionals in financial markets seem to forget that things like value premiums, the key word here is premium which means you don't get it every year. You might not get it for 20 years. The stock market could go down for 20 years. This is why you're paid a premium is it's not a guarantee. And I think there's something in us on both sides, people who are way too risk averse, not realizing what they're giving up by not taking risk, and people who are just completely oblivious and think upside comes with no cost. And sort of exploring this in the new book is how our connections with risk have changed over the years. And it's amazing to me, no risk, no reward. It's cliche at this point. For some reason, it's something no one seems to really understand or internalize at all. I mean, I think education is certainly helpful. I mean, I think it was Matt Levine of Bloomberg has pointed out that when you teach financial literacy, you'll teach things like compounding and how wonderful that is. But you don't also say, hey, a higher return also comes with a higher chance of loss. And that is just an ironclad rule. If you remember that, you're going to get into a lot less trouble because it also keeps you away from scams. If anyone says, oh, you're going to get 8% guaranteed return and never have a loss, that this is not a good investment. And if the stock market's way up and you made 14%, I I was just looking, my portfolio is up 14% for me, even with all the volatility from last year. But like, I know that that comes with a cost, which is, it's not a guarantee. It's one of the things we took away from all of our time spent with the dimensional gang. And that is that it's not actually risk and return that are related, it's risk and expected return. An actual return is whatever the gods decide to hand out. And that's one of the things that we try to encourage people to understand is that, okay, just because you took a higher risk doesn't mean you will get a higher return. It just means you have the possibility. And so that whole concept of probability is one that I think maybe a lot of people don't quite understand. I think they struggle with it. Or I'm always surprised when you read a lot of media accounts, certainly it's like the value premium of like writing it off because it hasn't existed for 10 years. And it's sort of like, well, neither did small cap premium, like 10 years. I mean, this is why it is a premium is that it's not a guarantee. And I can't guarantee that in the five-year or even a 20-year time horizon, it's going to pay off. But on average over 50 years, it probably will. That's interesting. I got to tell you a short story. Greg and I actually were trapped in Austin, Texas, with Bob Merton at an airport. Oh, yeah. I bet he talked a lot. Well, it was an interesting time because you talk about probability of distributions. The airport was flooded 
with a massive storm and all the airlines were grounded. So the probability of that was very low when we were going to Austin and it just occurred. So that was the premium. But okay, we think about risk in terms of standard deviation, variance and covariance. But I think at the end of the day, most people just want to know that they're going to be okay. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think people have problems defining risk. And in finance, I think it's a fine shorthand to say risk is standard deviation. But really, risk has a very emotional connection to people. And it could be just downside risk. It could be upside risk. It could be tail risk. But Bob has a great definition of risk, which I think really explains all of this. And he calls it the only unifying definition of risk, which is risk is what safe isn't. How do you define safety? And once you define safety, you can define risk. And safety has a real resonance. People want to know they're going to be okay. They want to know they're going to be safe. And safety could be knowing that you have enough money in retirement. It could just be knowing that you're going to get a particular return. And that makes it a safe asset and that it's liquid and you know exactly how much money one year from now it will be. Because risk is the opposite of safety. Then how you define safety also defines risk. Interesting. Now, it's interesting to me, and I started in this business quite a long time ago in the 90s, mid-90s, people didn't talk a lot about retirement and decumulation strategies and things like that in those days. And now, of course, everything you read, Bob Merton is working on it. And so when you have people like him that are making this a major focus of their academic study, why is that? Is this the baby boom thing again? Is this the pig in the python? And there's all of us putting myself in that category that are now at that point, and it's become a lot more important because there's just so many more of us? Yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. We really started with 401ks or DC plans in general in the 80s. In the 90s, they were just starting to hit their strides. No one's actually retired with them yet. It's sort of amazing to me. They sort of just jumped into this DC world without really thinking about decumulation. And now everyone's approaching retirement with hopefully some money and no one really knows what to do with them. So I think honestly, considering, I think we should be talking about it even more than we are. I mean, some people are talking about it. I think in services, I think I've noticed when you write about this a column anywhere, it gets a lot of readership, but it should be discussed everywhere. And I've seen very few good ways of dealing with it. I think the only country that's ever had a great accumulation plan was Chile and see what's happening there with their retirement system, which is quite sad. Well, yeah, because it feels like most people getting back to risk when markets are good, Everybody has a high risk tolerance. And then the minute markets turn bad, the true risk tolerance actually comes to light. Is that a fair statement? Yes, I think absolutely. Like my mother is someone who looks for balance every day. Anyway, I tell her not to. She has all sorts of things to tell her not to when it comes to finance. And she seems like genuinely betrayed when markets fall. Yeah. And it's like very upset. And I'm like, first of all, you shouldn't look every day. And second of all, if you don't want to lose money, you should not be in this portfolio. That's well, we have the same mother. My mom during the global credit crisis would look at me with tears rolling down her cheeks and say things like, How could you do this to me? <laughs> Which really hurts. <laughs> and then when everything got better, she said, Oh, you're doing such a great job. And both times I'm like, I'm not doing anything. It's just a market. This is why I don't give my mother investment advice other than don't look at the balance. She actually has a DFA advisor who I love. And I'm just like, Talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> He's great. I believe in a strategy, but it's not going to deliver you high returns every time. If that's what you need, you need to talk to them about your strategy. It brings up this point about not only behavioral biases, which of course we can talk about forever, but also the difference between systematic risk and unsystematic or specific risk. And how should everyday people think about those two things? Well, I think 
if you have idiosyncratic risk, you have the wrong advisor, because I think that's where advice is useful. I mean, systematic risk, there's only so much you can do. But idiosyncratic risk, there's really like no reason for it. Like if you talk to Merton, I mean, he once said to me, he thinks it maybe should not even be allowed to hold individual stock. Holding individual stock is like owning a muffler of a car. Like it's worthless if it's not (laughs) part of the larger machine. So therefore, you should only be able to buy mutual funds. I kind of say this to people and they freak out because I don't know why people think investing is buying individual stocks. And it is amazing to me, this is how most people think about investing. In fact, I remember when I was in high school, I took my first finance class and they had us read Peter Lynch's book, where effectively like told us to go to the mall and see where there were lines and then buy these companies. I look back, I'm like, I can't believe they had us read that. Like that is terrible advice. So I think people have to break this up and like sort of systematic risk is largely unavoidable unless you avoid risk altogether. And idiosyncratic risk, if you're exposed to that, then there's something wrong with your strategy. I love that holding an individual <laughs> stock is like buying a muffler. <laughs> I'm going to use that one. Yeah, that's, that's, that's excellent. <laughs> but it's how people think. So many people I know got into investing this last year and they very proudly tell me this, all my friends who've never invested before and because they think I know how to buy individual stocks, which I don't, I don't own any myself. I don't even know how. And they're like, I bought this, this and that. And they expect this approval from me. And I'm like, that's great. Hey, you're getting involved in markets, but maybe you have balance that out with an index fund. Well, I remember at one of my first conferences, Terence O'Dean, who's a big name in behavioral finance, was telling stories back in those days. It was the explosion of online trading and discount brokers and things like that. And he was talking about a surgeon who was coming to him and just a friend talking about what he thought about the idea of maybe trading options and futures. And his advice was, well, I hope you lose a lot of money right away, because if you lose money right away, it'll keep you from thinking you're smarter than everybody else and losing a whole lot more money down the road. That's sort of the secret, isn't it? It's like if people take a risk and it happens to pay off, like gambling, it explodes. Yeah, you see that on a lot of these TikTok investors. I see these TikTok investors like effectively saying, like, it's so easy to make money in the market. And they describe like momentum strategy. It's like, oh God. But I heard Josh Brown say on CNBC about this is when the GameStop stuff was happening. And he's made the same point you just did. He's like, I think this is a great development because it gets people engaged in markets and also lets them to know like how not to be stupid because they'll probably lose money someday. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I know you're just fitting us in, in between things. So I think we should move on to the lightning round, Greg. Sure. Absolutely. So you've done all the heavy lifting. Thank you for doing that, Allison. We really appreciate that. And we want to just finish off with a speed round just for fun. So these are no right or wrong to these answers. Greg, you want to kick okay. it Sure. Well, okay. So the first thing is when you're not advising and running your business and writing and writing books, what do you do for fun? Oh, gosh. I play bridge. Oh, Okay. Of course, because you're doing a risk analysis in the bridge game, aren't you, or no? I'm actually a very mediocre bridge player. <laughs> My risk analysis and probability abilities get me to the point where I'm mediocre, but I don't have to work hard. But if you want to be good at bridge, you actually do have to work hard, and I'm too lazy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Any books you're reading right now, other than writing? I'm reading Jared Diamond's Upheaval for book research. I was just on a plane to Miami, and someone handed me a book about Truman Capote, which I'm also enjoying. Oh, cool. You probably don't have time for this, but do you stream any shows? Pandemic streaming. Oh, yeah. I waste a lot of time. (laughs) I just finished Yellow Jackets. That was wonderful. Yellow Jackets. What's that one? Oh, it's about a soccer team in the 90s, and they get trapped in the Canadian wilderness and become cannibals. 
but it's so much better than a cell. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we probably ran into them at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to some Canadian specific questions because we are Canadian. And just so you know, we have talked to a number of your fellow New Yorkers as well as other Americans. And so you're getting the same treatment that they all do. <laughs> your first question, and Colin and I both come from relatively small towns in Saskatchewan, Regina and Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Your question is, how do you spell Saskatchewan? Oh God, don't ask me that. I have no idea. <laughs> I think there's a W and a Z in there, isn't there? Okay. There's a W. There's a W for sure. Okay. Yeah. We'll give you 50% on that yeah. one. And on those cold morning strolls in New York, when you're cruising around Manhattan, do you ever wear a toque? I don't know. I don't know what one is. Okay. Oh, I think you do. I think you do wear one. It's that maybe wool hat with the pom-pom at the top. Oh, yes, I do have one. Yeah, there you might refer to them as beanie, a beanie. I think just a pom-pom or just a hat. Hat, yeah. <laughs> one more, Greg. Okay. We're Canadians, and there are some different views about how Canadians are and how maybe they're different than Americans. Have you ever witnessed a sorry fight? I don't know. A sorry fight. Sorry, Colin, would you... Sorry, Greg, I didn't quite follow oh, I'm, you. I'm sorry, Colin. No, I, did I interrupt? I'm My sorry. apologies. We no. didn't give Allison a chance to reply. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that, Allison. <laughs> oh, yeah, so. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Okay. We'll wrap it up there, and we'll let you get on to your next activity. Allison, thanks so much for joining us today, sharing your wisdom and knowledge. We really appreciate that time with you. Well, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. It's our, our pleasure. pleasure to have you. Thank you. All right. Well, now listen, next week we continue on the mini series of choosing an investment professional. And the following week, we have Kathleen Fitzgerald, adjunct associate professor of strategic management at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. University of Chicago, of course, Allison, you know, is the epicenter of DFA. So we're pleased to have her on the show. And please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download your podcast content. So until next time. Next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.